This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show. And if you would care to sign up for our newsletter, go to ouramericannetwork.org, and we'll promise you our five best stories of the week. Transcribed if you'd like to read them, and if you'd love to hear the terrific production values that we bring to each and every story, you can listen to them. Again, go to ouramericannetwork.org to sign up for our newsletter. Send us your email address and we'll give you our five best stories each week. We love to tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to history and to sports. And we love talking about, well, innovation and engineering. And the Lockheed SR-71, known as the Blackbird, is a long-range Mach 3 strategic reconnaissance aircraft that was operated by the U.S. Air Force from 1964 to 1998. At sustained speeds of more than Mach 3.2, the plane was faster than the Soviet Union's fastest interceptor, the MiG-25, which also could not reach the SR-71's altitude. During its service life, no SR-71 was ever shot down. And now we bring you to Major Brian Schull, U.S. Air Force retired, who relays the true story of a ground speed check while piloting the SR-71 Blackbird over Southern California. It's called the LA Speed Story. And I, it was just a story about one day it was really cool being, being SR-71 pilot. Walter and I were doing a training mission around the United States where you just were building up hours and time. And we take off out of Beale, hit a tanker in Idaho, rip on up to uh, Montana, zip across Denver, hang a right turn in Albuquerque, out over Los Angeles, up to Seattle, back into Sacramento, two hours, 21 minutes. And you just do that for, and you do it backwards, and you hit a tanker. It was just, just to gain crew coordination, get, build your hours. We're on our last training mission. We're over Tucson. I can see downtown LA from Tucson. We're at 89,000 feet. I can see the whole western United States bathed in a warm October fall glow. I can see the chain of Rocky Mountains from Canada to New Mexico. I could, I could just see the most beautiful picture laid at my feet in this air as smooth as glass, not a gauge moving in the cockpit. It was perfect. Now I'm thinking, we bad. <laughs> now I feel sorry for Walter because he has to monitor five radios in the back seat, so I flipped the switch up just to listen. and. L.A. Center is controlling, they control all, when you fly southwest there, the guy's controlling everybody. But we're above controlled airspace. So they have us on their scope, but they're not talking to us. Now there's controllers all over the country, Jacksonville Center, Chicago Center, Seattle Center, you know. It's the same guy. They all talk the same. And it's really cool the way they talk, because they make you feel important as a pilot. They don't just say, yeah, okay, here's your thing. They make you feel really cool. So sure enough, this was pre-GPS days. Some Cessna guy has to know his ground speed. Uh, LA Center Cessna, November Tango Alpha, you got a ground speed readout for us? Now, Center would like to say, who cares? Get off free. <laughs> but no, he'll talk to him like he's John Glenn. Cessna, November Alpha, we show you 90 knots, nine zero knots on the ground. And they do that sing-song, but that's how they talk. And it makes you feel kind of cool. Right after that, a twin bonanza came up to pimp the guy for speed, I guess. And, LA Center, Twin Beach, uh, whatever. You got a ground speed read up for us? And Center likes it. God, it's Friday. Why me? God, please, just get off. But he's going to talk to him like he's Air Force One. Twin Beach, shall we show you 121, two zero knots on the ground? And right after that, 
A Navy F-18 out of Lamar popped up on frequency. And you knew it was a Navy guy because he talked really slick on the radio. <laughs> Center Dusty 5-2 speed check. And I'm thinking, wait a minute. Dusty 5-2 has a ground speed indicator and that million dollar F-18 cockpit. It's right there in the heads up display. Why is he calling Center to broadcast his speed? <laughs> I get it. We are just the meanest, baddest, fastest military jet in the valley today. We're taking our little Hornet jet over Mount Whitney and ripping across Death Valley. We want everyone from Fresno to the coast to know what real speed is. And you can almost hear a little, a little glee in the controller's voice like, we have put an end to this. <laughs> Dusty 5-2, we show you 620, 620 knots across the ground. And it was that across the ground. See that little knife like, I hope nobody else has the nerve to get on frequency now. And there wasn't an airliner from Seattle to San Diego that wanted to be next on freak. It's sort of an etiquette thing amongst flyers. And a 12-year-old was reaching for the mic button. <laughs> and I thought, oh, no, wait, Walter's in charge of the radios. I flew single seat all those years, but I'm in the family model now. And I, I went, no, it's the Navy that must die and it must die now. And I, and I thought, no, but if I do, I, well, I'll upset Walter and I want us to be a good crew. And I, at that moment... I heard a click with the mic button in the back seat. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Walter and I became a crew at that moment. <laughs> His best innocent voice, LA Center, Aspen 3-0. Have you got a ground speed readout for us? <laughs> you could almost hear a collective gasp on Freak, like all oh, the poor fools didn't hear the previous transmissions. Oh, they, they got crushed like a grape. It's, it's just a pilot thing. But Center had to give you that same voice. Aspen 30, we show you 1,992 knots <laughs> across the ground. When I knew I was going to like Walter a lot is when he came back and said, Center, we're showing a little closer to 2,000. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we did not hear another transmission on that frequency all the way to the coast. The king of speed lived, the Navy had been flamed, and a crew had been formed. For just a moment, it was absolutely fun being the fastest guys on the block. And what a voice. And that is the sound of America's best. The humor. Well, that's what we love to do here on Our American Stories. Bring it direct to you. And that's, well, that's U.S. Air Force retired pilot Brian Schul telling a story and just, well, shooting it a little bit. And we bring it to you here on Our American Stories. And again, go to ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our newsletter. And just as important, stories like this, we want to hear them from you. You're in the military, wherever you are, whatever walk of life, musician, teacher, share your story with us. We'll shoot it right back at you here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and our next story comes from a former veteran of the National Hockey League, Sean Pronger. Sean's nine-year voyage and the stories behind it are chronicled in his well-received memoir entitled Journeyman, the many triumphs and even more numerous defeats of a guy who's seen just about everything in the game of hockey. An excerpt from Sean's book was posted by the sports website Deadspin, and it quickly went viral. It's titled, I Was Wayne Gretzky's Hungover Linemate, An NHL Journeyman Picks the Wrong Night to Drink. Let's take a listen to Sean's story. To the side of the net, Taylor to Gretzky, he scores! Wayne Gretzky has tied it and broken 40 house records. Say I was a Wayne Gretzky fan as a child would be like saying that my brother Chris has a small gap in his teeth. The Oilers were my team, and Wayne was my idol. It's a great game. I didn't do it to make the paper or get on TV. Uh, That wasn't really even sort of the mindset. We just played for fun. When Chris and I played hockey in the basement, I was always Gretzky, and he was always Mike Bossy. Mike Bossy put it in the net and then Two of the most creative offensive forwards of all time. These guys were our idols. My brother Chris turned into a Norris Trophy winning defenseman in the NHL. Chris Pronger, imposing, feared, and dominant. He won the MVP of the NHL. Not too many D have done that. You know, Bobby Orr. He didn't care about anything except for winning. And that's who you want on your team. And I, well, that's what this story is about. We grew up in Dryden, a small mill town in northwestern Ontario, 400 kilometers east of Winnipeg. At that time, the Jets were still in Winnipeg, and they were in the classic Smythe division. That meant the Edmonton Oilers came to town often to torture the Jets and their fans. One year, we made the journey to the peg, and by chance, or perhaps by stalking, the Prongers were staying in the same hotel as the Oilers. I can still remember sitting in the lobby with Chris, watching the Oilers walk through on their way to breakfast. Kevin Lowe walked by and Chris casually said, Hey Kev, as if they were old buddies. Who knew years later they would be buddies? I didn't see Gretzky go through the lobby, so I went over to the restaurant to have a look. And wouldn't you know it, my idol was in fact there. I can still remember Wayne was eating Eggs Benny that day. As I was spying on him, an old man came up to me and said, Hey kid, can you go get Wayne's autograph for my son? Now understand, I didn't want to ask because the great one was eating. On the other hand, of course I asked. If I'd had any brains in my head, I would have gotten one for myself as well. No one ever said I was a genius. Fast forward about 20 years, and wouldn't you know it? I got traded to a New York Rangers team that included none other than the great one. I felt like I was a fantasy camper. Start spreading the news. Looking back, I see that may be one of the reasons my career never took off the way I thought it would. 
I never felt like I belonged because I was always looking through young Sean's eyes at my great teammates. New York, New York. From November 1998 to February 1999, I was a Ranger and a teammate of Wayne Gretzky. Any chance I got to hang out with him, I did. Although most of the time he had no idea we were hanging out. As a fringe player, you have to keep a positive attitude. No one wants to see a fifth liner complain about ice time. So one night I decided to go blow off a little steam, see what the Big Apple had to offer. The fact that a practice was scheduled for the next day did not weigh into my decision making one bit. My friend Herbie, my wife and I found a nice little tavern for a bite and a few carbonated wheat sodas. To the game! Thank God there is still a sport for middle-sized white boys. One led to another, which of course led to another four, and the next thing we knew, my wife and I were strolling home at 4.30 a.m. I think I got to bed around 5 a.m., which was great, because I had to get up at 7 a.m. to drive to the practice rink. I got a solid two hours sleep before the buzzer woke me from my coma. To be honest, I wasn't too worried, because I had been practicing on defense the day before. Not a great sign for a forward. I was literally a practice fill-in. Anyway... As I walked through the dressing room, I got the sense that something wasn't right. Wait a second. That's the wrong colored jersey hanging in my stall. Why is it red? You see, in New York, I was a yellow jersey. The scrub line color. Red, on the other hand, was for Gretzky, Adam Graves, and Kevin Stevens. I decided someone must be messing with me. I scanned the room to see who was trying to have some fun. Not a person in the room. I grabbed the red jersey and headed into equipment manager Mike Vogelin's office. Folks, you gave me the wrong jersey. No, I didn't, he barked back. You're wearing red today, my friend. Kevin has the flu. Mouth agape, I suddenly realized I'm playing on Gretzky's line today. A million thoughts and questions rushed through my head. What have I done? Why did I stay out so late? Why don't they close the bars earlier? Where's my camera? How hard would young Sean punch me in the face right now? And he'd be right to do so. My first chance to play with the great one, and I had a bad case of the brown bottle flu. I jumped in the shower and drenched myself in freezing cold water. Time to wake up and get ready to go. Now I know what you're thinking. Slow down, Chris's brother. It's not like you're playing the Islanders tonight. This is practice, after all. I know. But you have to understand that for us fifth-liners, practice is the game. And when you're playing with Gretzky, it's the all-star game. As the skate loomed closer, I wondered if I should have a talk with Gretz. Just a little chat between first-liners to let him know what transpired a few hours earlier. Or maybe I should just suck up to him and lie about my state. I opted to come clean. Gretz, I'm hungover. Maybe even a little drunk still. Can you keep the puck away from me today? I could not believe I was saying this even as the words were coming out of my mouth. Was I really telling the greatest player in the history of the game, not to mention the finest passer ever, to keep the puck away from me? I was. And the great one was great about it. No problem, Pronks. I've been there myself. Wait. 
Did he just call me Prongs? He knows my name? Somehow that one line from Wayne put my mind at ease. Wayne knew my situation, and he had my back. What a guy. I was calm as I got dressed. As I did, I couldn't help but dream that Wayne and I would have some undeniable chemistry together which would force Coach to do the right thing and keep me on the top unit. We'd become as tight as two coats of paint. Right. I could barely contain my grin as we began to wheel around the ice before the drill started. There was a strut in my step and not the Guinness legs I'd expected to be carting around. I had completely shut out the fact that the coaches likely didn't want to mess up the other lines by moving someone up to play on the red line. But as the drills began, every single pass Gretz made was to yours truly. And I'm not talking about those beautiful saucer passes you see in his video, Hockey My Way. I'm talking about wobbly hand grenades that would blow up as soon as they hit my stick. And by the way, I was playing the off wing. That's right. I had to try to catch those bouncing Bettys on my backhand. Thinking the whole episode was my fault, I formulated an apology as I headed back to the line. Sorry, Wayne, was all I could come up with. He said, Prongs, don't worry about it. I'll try to give you better passes from now on. And he delivered the line with a wink. Turns out Wayne thought it would be fun to mess with me from the get-go. How awesome is that? The greatest player ever to lace them up went out of his way to thoroughly embarrass a hungover grinder. And you know what? That made me feel more included than if he had played it straight. And a great story about leadership. And by the way, the character of Wayne Gretzky. And we love getting surprised. A lot of guys would have gotten in the grill of a grinder. And he didn't. He had fun with them. And picked him up, cheered him up, and on to the next thing. And we love to talk about what makes people great. And my goodness, an insight into the greatest of all time. One of the greatest athletes of the 20th century, Wayne Gretzky. This is Our American Stories. Yeah, he's a Canadian, but he lives in America now, Wayne. And what a great American story. More after these messages. Our American Stories, and this story comes to us from Michael T. Powers, the owner of a video production company, a youth pastor, and the author of the book Heart Touchers, Life-Changing Stories of Faith, Love, and Laughter, which includes the following story. Every year, Michael's hired by an 8th grade class to capture their trip to Washington, D.C., and in the year 2000, their last stop was at the Marine Corps War Memorial, which is the largest bronze statue in the world and depicts one of the most famous photographs in history. It's of the five Marines and one Navy corpsman who raised the American flag at the top of Mount Suribachi on the island of Iwo Jima, Japan, during World War II. And here's Michael 
with what happened next. So over 100 students and a chaperones piled off the buses and headed towards the memorial. I noticed a solitary figure at the base of the statue, and, and as I got closer, he looked at me and he asked, So what's your name, and where are you guys from? I told him my name was Michael Powers and that we were from Clinton, Wisconsin. Hey, I am a cheesehead too. Come, gather around, cheeseheads, and I will tell you a story. James Bradley just happened to be in Washington, D.C. to speak at the memorial the following day. He was there that night because he wanted to say goodnight to his dad, who had previously passed away and whose image is part of the statue. He was just about to leave when he saw the buses pull up. I videotaped him as he spoke to us, and I received his permission to share what he said from my videotape. See, it's one thing to tour the incredible monuments filled with history in Washington, D.C., but it's quite another to get the kind of insight that we received that night. When we had all gathered around, he reverently began to speak. Here are his words from that night. My name is James Bradley, and I'm from Anago, Wisconsin. My dad is on that statue, and I just wrote a book called Flags of Our Fathers, which is number five on the New York Times bestseller list. It's the story of the six boys that you see behind me. Six boys raised that flag. The first guy putting the pole in the ground, his name is Harlan Block. See, Harlan was an all-state football player, and he enlisted in the Marine Corps with all the senior members of his football team. They were off to play another type of game, a game called war. But it didn't turn out to be a game. Harlan, at the age of 21, died with his intestines in his hands. I don't say that to gross you out. I say that because there are people who stand in front of this statue and they talk about the glory of war. You guys need to know that most of the boys in Iwo Jima were 17, 18, and 19 years old. He pointed to the statue. You see this next guy? That's Rene Gagnon from New Hampshire. If you took his helmet off at the moment this photo was taken and you looked in the webbing of that helmet, you would find a photograph. A photograph of his girlfriend. He put it there for protection because he was scared. He was 18 years old. Boys won the Battle of Iwo Jima. Boys, not old men. The next guy here, the third guy in this tableau was Sergeant Mike Strank. Mike is my hero. In fact, he was the hero of all these guys. They called him the old man because he was so old. He was already 24. When Mike would motivate his boys in training camp, he didn't say, let's go kill the enemy or let's go die for our country. He knew he was talking to boys. Instead, he would say, you guys do what I say, and I will get you home to your mothers. The last guy on this side of the statue is Ira Hayes, a Pima Indian from Arizona. Ira Hayes walked off of Iwo Jima. He went into the White House with my dad. President Truman told him, son, you're a hero. He told reporters later, how can I feel like a hero when 250 of my buddies hit the island with me and only 27 of us walked off alive. So think about this. You, you take your class at school, maybe 250 of you, spending a year together, having fun, doing everything together. And then all 250 of you hit the beach. But only 27 
of your classmates walk off alive? That was Ira Hayes. He had images of horror in his mind. Ira Hayes died dead drunk, face down at the age of 32, 10 years after this picture was taken. The next guy, as we go around the statue, is Franklin Sowsley from Hilltop, Kentucky, a fun-loving hillbilly boy. His best friend, who's now 70 years old, he told me, yeah, you know, we took two cows up on the porch of the Hilltop General Store, and then we strung wire across the stairs so that those cows couldn't get down. And then we fed them Epsom salts. Man, those cows, they crapped all night. Yeah, he was a fun-loving hillbilly boy. But Franklin died on Iwo Jima at the age of 19. And when the telegram came to tell his mother that he was dead, it went to the Hilltop General Store. And a barefoot boy ran that telegram up to his mother's farm. And the neighbors, they could hear her scream all night and into that next morning. And the neighbors lived a quarter of a mile away. The next guy, as we continue to go around the statue, is my dad, John Bradley from Anago, Wisconsin, where I was raised. My dad lived until 1994, but he would never give interviews. When Walter Cronkite's producers or the New York Times would call, we were trained as little kids to say, No, I'm, I'm sorry, sir. My dad's not here. He's in uh, Canada fishing. No, uh, no, there's no phone there, sir. No, no, we, we don't know when he's coming back. My dad never fished or even went to Canada. Usually he was sitting right there at the table eating his Campbell's soup. But we, we had to tell the press that he was out fishing. He didn't want to talk to the press. You see, my dad didn't see himself as a hero. Everyone thinks these guys are heroes because they're in a photo and a monument. My dad knew better. He was a medic. John Bradley from Wisconsin was a caregiver. In Iwo Jima, he probably held over 200 boys as they died. And when boys died in Iwo Jima, they writhed and they screamed in pain. When I was a little boy, my third grade teacher told me that my dad was a hero. When I went home and told my dad that, he looked at me and he said, I want you always to remember that the heroes of Iwo Jima are the guys who did not come back. Did not come back. So that's the story about six nice young boys. Three died on Iwo Jima and three came back as national heroes. Overall, 7,000 boys died on Iwo Jima in the worst battle in the history of the Marine Corps. My voice is giving out and so I will end here. Thank you all for your time. We were stunned. Suddenly, the monument wasn't just a big old piece of metal with a flag sticking out of the top. It came to life before our eyes with the heartfelt words of a son who did indeed have a father who was a hero. Maybe not a hero in his own eyes, but a hero nonetheless. And thank you for that reading, Michael. And boy, the class, what a lucky class to bump into James Bradley and hear that story. Bringing life to his statue, real life. James Bradley's book, Flags of Our Fathers, well, it became a fantastic hit for Clint Eastwood. By the same name, of course. Imagine those numbers. 250 boys hit the beaches. 27 survive. It's unimaginable. 
And we don't just bring you these stories on Memorial Day or Veterans Day. They come to you year-round because you need to hear them. We all need to hear them. This is Our American Stories, Michael Powers' story, James Bradley's story, and his father's. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we sent our interns on a tour of the American South, and naturally a trip down the South is not complete without looking into the wonderful culinary culture located down where we live, just south of Memphis. And one of the places they went specializes in the history of Southern food and beverage. Here's Monty Montgomery, our Hillsdale intern, with a look into the Museum of Southern Food and Beverage. According to anthropologists, people who study human culture, food is not just an essential component for survival. It is a mode of language and rhetorically represents a culture, country, or even a city. We call this kind of food cuisine, and out of all the cities in the United States, New Orleans has perhaps the most recognizable one. And at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum, this is abundantly clear. My name is Liz Williams, and I'm the director of the Southern Food and Beverage Museum here in New Orleans. The anthropologist Sidney Menz defined cuisine, and he said cuisine was food that everyone in a region recognizes, everyone feels they know about, and everyone of every class eats. So if everyone is eating it, whether you're of the highest class or the lowest class, that really lets you know that it is cuisine and people's identity and the way they think about themselves is all related to the food. We probably are the only place that has a real cuisine. Every other part of the South has dishes that are things that they ate and that are identified with them. But I think Louisiana has cuisine in the way that, say, Italy has cuisine or whatever. And people always complain that the food in New Orleans from place to place is always the same. And it's like saying there's too much pasta in Italy or something, you know. In many regions of the world, cuisine is a staple of one cultural group, Italian, Chinese, Indian, French. Each of these showcases an important aspect of identity for people living in that culture. But there is something truly different about New Orleans cuisine. Nobody can claim a true ownership over it. One of the reasons that I think that we have a cuisine here, rather than just have ethnic groups who were just coming together, is that we were founded by the French in 1718. At the time all of this was happening here in Louisiana, the French were developing the restaurant, and the French were developing cuisine, the haute cuisine that we now think of as French cooking. 
So all of the people who settled here from France had that mindset in their heads when they got here. And so when they were interacting with the native people who already had a way of cooking, they were bringing the idea of cooking here. So they were happy to learn about all of the foods that were here and learn about how they could be cooked and then they brought their own aesthetic to it. So then you had the Spanish who came later, but now you've got this settled population of people from France. So the Spanish come, they have had um, moors in Spain for hundreds of years. So because of that, they've begun to really use spices in a way that France hadn't. So they wanted a fi more fiery food. Plus, here you are in, in the Americas and you're finding that not only are there spices that are being brought in, but there are chilies here. And so that gives you another level of spices. So the Spanish come, they bring their spices, they bring their taste for rice, they bring certain things that weren't actually here yet. They're literally bringing rice over. So that, that's also part of it. And then you have the enslaved Africans who bring a taste for rice and beans together. Uh, actually, they were rice and peas, because in Africa they were peas, not rice, not, not beans. Here we had beans, and so they just substituted beans for peas. So all of these things start to come together because the French are just absorbing it all. And so it's not that they had the strongest influence on the actual methodology of cooking or the ingredients or whatever. It was just that they were fusing it together. And then you have here in Louisiana, you have Germans. They were bringing a sausage making tradition. Um, they also were the bakers. There also was a bit of necessity on the part of the original settlers of New Orleans that drove the mass cultural melting pot of food that would eventually become New Orleans cuisine. The French who were first settling here were vagabonds and uh, they were being taken out of prison. And so they were like pickpockets and people in debtor's prison and things like that. They weren't like major criminals. They were just, that's why I'm calling them vagabonds. But they also didn't have any skill. I mean, if you make your living as pickpocket, you probably don't know how to make a loaf of bread. So they had to bring in people who had those skills in order to actually be settled. So the Germans brought that. They brought the sausage making traditions. New Orleans is an old city. And by the time the United States of America gained the Louisiana Territory, there was an established food culture. But another massive wave of immigration was about to happen from two other groups, one of which most people would probably not associate with New Orleans. So then in the 19th century, we became American. That meant all these Americans came down and they had all of their own food ways that got incorporated in. And then you had a bunch of Sicilians come. We had probably the largest Sicilian immigration in the entire country. And uh, they took over the French Quarter. It was called Little Palermo. They say that outside of Palermo, the largest population of uh, Sicilian dialect speakers was here in New Orleans. And of course, they're bringing pasta. The interesting thing is, of course, tomatoes were from uh, the Americas. The tomato went back with Columbus was adopted by southern Italy 
totally transformed the cuisine of southern Italy. And then they developed the, uh, the habit and the technique of canning their tomatoes so that they had tomatoes all year. They bring back the concept of using canned tomatoes in their food because we grew so many tomatoes here that we always had fresh tomatoes, so we weren't canning tomatoes, wasn't a big thing. So I think it's interesting that tomatoes came from here, went back to Italy, and then came back. It's just one of those interesting little tidbits. And so then the Sicilian food came here, our snowballs, our practice of stuffing vegetables with, um, with uh, breadcrumbs instead of rice, things like that, which is a southern thing is rice in your stuffings. But here we do it with breadcrumbs and that was all the Sicilian influence. Even today, New Orleans cuisine continues to evolve and bring new groups into the mix, leading to some very interesting food developments. So then we had the big uh, influence of the uh, post-Vietnam War, when we had so many people from Vietnam come to New Orleans, and now we call banh mi Vietnamese po'boys, and you can get a banh mi with fried oysters and pate, you know, because it's all mixed together. And then after Hurricane Katrina, in the beginning, we had so many people from Mexico come here because they were helping to rebuild the city, and so you've got oyster tacos and all kinds of things that were never heard of in Mexico that we were eating and that we are still eating. And so if you can cook well and your cuisine is interesting, come sit by me because we're gonna creolize it. And the cuisine of New Orleans has an interesting twist to it. The cuisine hasn't come out of the restaurant, but rather the homes of everyday people living there. So let's talk about something like gumbo. If you ask anybody in New Orleans, where do you get the best gumbo? Nobody is going to tell you a restaurant. Everyone is going to say, at my house or my grandmother's house or something like that, because it's home cooking. It's not restaurant food. And everyone recognizes other people's gumbo. So if I ate at your house and your family fixed gumbo, I would recognize that I was eating gumbo, but it would taste different than the gumbo in my house. And I might learn something from your family's gumbo and take that home and then that might have my gumbo adapt. And this sharing of the food, everyone recognizing it, even though everybody's is different, is something that is really, really an essential aspect of cuisine. Even though the cuisine differs from household to household, that doesn't mean that it splits people apart. It actually brings them together. Another thing that's really important about cuisine is that everyone's opinion is actually respected. So a friend of mine and I did an experiment where we dressed up a lot, carried briefcases in a big high-rise building, and we rode in the elevator. Now, you know the protocol for riding in an elevator where you face the door and nobody talks? Well, we decided as we would go into the elevator that we would say to each other, where do you think the best po'boy is? And that started a conversation. And no matter who was on the elevator, people felt that they had a right to participate in that conversation. And it didn't matter. Everybody felt the right to enter into the conversation. That is kind of proof positive that we have a real cuisine. And you listen to people talk about food on the bus, and you listen to people talk about food everywhere. And 
people want to know, you know, do you sweat your green peppers before you put them in your gumbo or do you put them in raw and let them cook inside? All the little nuances of it. It's like everybody wants to know. And nobody thinks that because you're not educated or because you're poor or because you're old or young or whatever that you don't know. Everybody knows. And great job, Monty. And by the way, for my money and my brides, Johnny's is the best place to get a po' boy, and I had to add that in. I got married in Nolans with my wife and love the city. We visit often as a family. Great job to Monty, and thanks to Liz Williams of the Museum of Southern Food and Beverage and Liz Williams' book, New Orleans, A Food Biography. Pick it up at Amazon. This is Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and today we're diving into one of my favorite books of the year, and we do a lot of books here on the show. Go to ouramericannetwork.org and see all that we do, and while we're there, or while you're there, sign up for our free newsletter, and again, that's ouramericannetwork.org. You'll get our five best stories of the week, and the book is Kicks by Nicholas Smith, and it's all about the history of sneakers. Before we start the story, Nicholas, I want to read two things from your prologue. Quote, sneakers can help us stand out or blend in. They can be the item we build our outfits up from or an afterthought we slip on before running out the door. And every sneaker we wear says something about us in both subtle and not so subtle ways. This was something I never actually thought about until I did. Was this true with you? And what led you to write this history of the sneaker? Well, I'm not what you would call uh, a traditional sneakerhead. I don't have a closet full of 50 different rare sneakers that are, you know, limited edition or things like this. Uh, I approach this story from a runner's perspective. I, uh, running is my hobby, so most of my sneakers are kind of running sneakers. And the more I researched the story, the more I kind of saw the appeal of shoes as a fashion item. It's not something I really sat down to, to think about, you know, like many people I had maybe just one pair of casual sneakers to, to go outside and go to uh, the grocery store with. But as I researched more into this, I started to see kind of the appeal of having a sneaker for this outfit or a sneaker for that outfit. Here's a very common item that for some people, it is, it is the basis of their outfit and everything that they're building up from kind of rests on the sneaker. And for other people, it's the complete afterthought. It's the last thing that they throw on before going out the door. And I think that's, that's really the, the most interesting thing about sneakers. Indeed. And my 13-year-old girl, the poor shoe people, because she has almost no shoes. She and all of her friends have 8, 10, and 12 pairs of sneakers for precisely the reasons you discussed, Nicholas. So it's an interesting trend, what's happening with younger people. You also wrote this in the prologue. The history of the sneaker is, in a sense, the recent history of the United States. I thought that was such an absurd statement when I read it, Nicholas. And that is until I started reading the book and the story. So let's start off at the beginning with the story of Charles Goodyear. Talk about this American innovator and businessman, because it's quite a story. 
We, we can't really tell the uh, the history of the sneaker or really many of the other objects that are everyday objects without telling the history of industry. And to go back to the beginning, to the Industrial Revolution, uh, Charles Goodyear was an inventor, kind of a, a tinkerer, a person who would be stuck in his basement trying to solve the problem of rubber. Now, the problem of rubber in the early uh, Industrial Revolution was it was very susceptible to temperature. Uh, when it was cold, it would turn brittle. When it was hot, it would melt. So as you can imagine, rubber products weren't very versatile. Uh, Goodyear uh, had the idea that rubber could be stabilized. And through his years and years of tinkering with different mixtures, different ways of preparing it, he perfected vulcanized rubber, which uh, is more resilient uh, to temperature. Now, without vulcanized rubber, we couldn't have, of course, uh, sneaker soles, but we also couldn't have uh, car tires or you, you know, so many different parts uh, that we rely on uh, today. So this was kind of a very uh, important uh, invention that Goodyear stumbled upon. Indeed it was, but before sneakers could take off, we also needed the idea of leisure time. That, too, would develop as America and the world industrialized. Yeah, people forget that the concept of the weekend is kind of a a very new concept. Now, kind of the the forerunner to the weekend and vacations for the working class was uh, called Wakes Weeks. Now, in Britain, during the Industrial Revolution, they would have to close the factories periodically to uh, you know, maintenance the machines and do service work. And during this time, the workers would take their holidays, or, or what we would call holidays. What was once the area of just the upper class, just having uh, so much free time that you could devote to hobbies or different things, was finally starting to trickle down to everyone else. And you know, to fill that free time, we saw the growth of sports, of games, of hobbies, of many different things. And let's talk about one of those sports. Let's talk about James Naismith. Who was he, for folks who aren't avid basketball fans, and why is he such a big figure in your story? So James Naismith, of course, was the inventor of basketball. He was also a teacher at a uh, a YMCA. Now, as the story goes, it was a very cold, very dark winter near the turn of the century, and uh, his students were stuck inside, and he didn't know what to do with them. You know, those days, physical activity was calisthenics, aerobics, gymnastics, not something that's very competitive. So Naismith nailed up two peach baskets, one on each side of his gymnasium, and he had a, a soccer ball with him, and he had, you know, Two teams try to get that basketball into the peach basket on either side. What he found was his, his students took to it very quickly. He wrote down the rules and had them published in an academic journal, and this eventually spread to other YMCAs and then to other schools and then to other uh, universities across the country. So the game of basketball kind of benefited from having that set of rules travel around so quickly. Who's Chuck Taylor? We've seen his name stitched on Converse. He was a big player in your story. Now, Chuck Taylor isn't one of those figures uh, like that that was invented for a brand. He was an actual person. Converse was a 
company that's it's been around 100 years now today. But when uh, Chuck Taylor joined the company, it was the 1920s. Uh, he had just finished a very short career as a professional basketball player. And uh, w- when I say professional in those days, it's kind of more what we would consider uh, a semi-professional uh, basketball player. But he wasn't very distinguished, even among the players of the day. But he did have a good knowledge of the game. And this is what he brought to Converse when he was a salesman. He would travel from town to town putting on these basketball clinics. He's kind of the uh, the Johnny Appleseed figure of basketball. So in every town that he would visit, every clinic he would put on in schools or universities, he would teach the basics, he would teach some tricks. And, you know, of course, there was that little marketing message in there that, you know, in order to play basketball really well, you would need these Converse All-Star shoes. And after years of success, he decided to name the All-Star the Chuck Taylor shoe. So this is why, to this day, you you see his name stitched on Converse Chuck Taylors everywhere in the world. And when we come back, more with Nicholas Smith. The book Kicks, the great American story of sneakers. Our American Stories, and we're back with Nick Smith talking about his book, Kicks. We were just learning about the origin of Chuck Taylor's sneakers, shoes named after a salesman who was basketball's Johnny Appleseed. Can you think of a single product that's named after the salesman in a company, not the CEO, not the patriarch, the salesman? Because I racked my brain, Nicholas, and I couldn't think of one. You know, off the top of my head, no, and I'm sure if I thought about it for another couple hours, I, I couldn't uh, I couldn't think of any. And that kind of speaks to the marketing genius that uh, Chuck Taylor had. One of the other things that Converse did to kind of develop the game further is they published this uh, yearbook, kind of a who's who book of basketball of the day. So if your team wanted to be in the yearbook, you just had to send a photo of your, your team in and where you played and, and who all the players were. And, of course, you had to wear the, uh, the Converse uh, you know, shoes in, in the, uh, the picture. But uh, in this book, Chuck Taylor would say, you know, here's, the, here's some tricks of the game. Here are the best players playing the game, and, you know, traveling from town to town. He really had an eye for who was good, who was an up-and-coming college player, and Coaches called him for advice on, well, who should my scouts go after? So he was kind of a a self-developed expert in the game, and this earned him a place in the Basketball Hall of Fame. So, you know, here we have another example of a a salesman not only having his name on a shoe, but ending up in a sports Hall of Fame. Yeah, it's remarkable how he deployed every tool in the toolkit to sell. And actually, it just sounded to me from reading your book that he didn't think of himself as a salesman, but an evangelist for this ministry called basketball. Exactly. And, you know, part of that comes from his connection to the game. Because he was an actual player, he saw maybe a different side of it that a normal salesman uh, wouldn't see. So there was a, uh, a level of expertise that also attracted people to these clinics. Here you would hear uh, a professional player really tell you how to play. Here, here are the real tricks. Here's what, here's what the people are actually wearing. So it, it did have a, uh, a certain degree of expertise when he went around. That's great. And let's talk about a track coach 
who had a tremendous impact on the world of sneakers, sports, and the culture. Let's talk about Bill Bowerman. He coached nine sub-four-minute milers at the University of Oregon, the most of any coach in America, four NCAA team championships, 24 NCAA individual titles, and coached 33 Olympians. Some call him the Bear Bryant, the Nick Saban of the running world. That's perfectly accurate. He really knew the sport in and out, but uh, he would do experiments with everything having to do with running. He would, in his backyard, mix up different combinations of rubber to create a, a good running surface to run on. He would make the clothes that his runners wore the, out of the lightest material he could find. But he also uh, experimented with shoes. You know, in those days, there weren't uh, as many choices for running shoes as we have today. He surmised that the best running shoe was probably one that was made specifically for the athlete. You didn't waste any extra material. It was it, it fit perfectly. It, it didn't have an extra ounce on it that it uh, that it didn't need to have. So he would use his runners as kind of human guinea pigs while making his uh, his own shoe concoctions. Over time, he got a little better and, and better at it. And uh, this caught the eye of one of his uh, former students, a uh, runner by the name of Phil Knight. Now, Phil Knight had just returned from a, uh, a trip to Japan business idea. And uh, while he was in Japan, uh, he met with the executives of a company called Onitsuka Tiger. Now, we, we kind of know this company more as ASICs today. Uh, but in the, uh, the 1960s, they were, they were Tiger shoes. They were still you know, fairly good shoes at the time. And Phil Knight says to his old coach, look, we can make you know, some money importing these shoes, these Japanese shoes to the US market because they are of similar quality to the Adidas and Puma uh, shoes that are out there, but of course cost much less. So of course, Bowerman jumped at the chance not only to, uh, you know, to, to have a little side money, but to also have the ear of a shoe company that would finally listen to him. So of course, over time, their company, which is called Blue Ribbon Sports, uh, gained more and more success, and they eventually spun off to a company that we know today as Nike. Now, the bones of Nike are built into, of course, running shoes and making kind of the, the perfect running shoe. So it, uh, it, it definitely came from an area of expertise. Indeed. And, and talk about a breakfast that changed Bowerman's life and waffles. Bowerman coached in Oregon. And uh, as, as we know, Oregon and the Pacific Northwest is very wet. You know, the running shoes of the day, the traction wasn't, wasn't great. Not, not enough to really grip mud, not enough to go over concrete very easily. And Bowerman was also obsessed with, with coming up some, some sort of pattern for the soul. And as the story goes, he's in the kitchen one Sunday. Wife is out. He sees the waffle iron, then he has an idea. It's like, wait a minute, the waffle pattern is the pattern I'm looking for. So he pours some molten rubber in the waffle iron, it gets stuck, and then he goes to the store to, to buy another waffle iron and, and you know does his test. And finally, he comes up with the, the waffle sole. Now, of course, the, the actual sole made for the shoes isn't made in the waffle iron. <laughs> the uh, waffle iron just provided the, the seed of the idea. But the, the waffle sole shoes proved to be a good enough grip for practically any surface. So this was kind of the, the beginning of the, uh, the jogging shoe uh, as we know it. And although jogging seems common and normal now, it wasn't always so, was it? You know, running as a hobby wasn't really, uh, wasn't really a thing. You know, if you 
went outside in the 50s and 60s and saw uh, someone running, it, uh, it it would kind of strike you as odd. You know, the, the only people that might go out jogging were, you know, boxers training and kind of the, the local town nutcase, and that was it. <laughs> but in the 50s and 60s and, and going on to the 70s, it started to become kind of a, a new trendy thing to go outside and run just for exercise. When Bill Barman traveled to New Zealand with his uh, relay team, the coach there for the New Zealand Olympic team said, you know, why, why don't you come on a race uh, or just, just a Sunday run with us? So he says, okay. You know, track coach going on a run. Okay, it, it seems easy. But uh, what he discovered was he, Barman, couldn't keep up with, uh, with any of the people. And some of them were much, much older than him. They blazed by them. And he was wondering, okay, why, why is it that I can't keep up with these people, but they seem to just go for miles and miles? And the New Zealand track coach had an a exercise regiment called jogging. So Bowerman took this idea, brought it back with him to, to Oregon, and kind of started the uh, very small jogging boom uh, in Oregon. So go across the coast to New York now. So another jogging boom was taking shape. Fred Lebo was working in the fashion industry in Manhattan, but he was also uh, an early jogger. And he is known today as the, the founder of the New York City Marathon. The early New York City marathons just went around Central Park a few times. But uh, Fred Lebo uh, had the idea that uh, by expanding the marathon across all five boroughs of the city, it can really kind of act as a uh, an advertisement uh, for New York, not just an advertisement for the city, but also as an advertisement for jogging. You know, one person was saying that the best singles bar in New York was Central Park because you can just go up to uh, someone else that was jogging and strike up a conversation. So what uh, Fred Lebo did and what uh, Bill Barman did was kind of start an exercise movement, kind of the first exercise fad uh, that the U.S. has known. Dr. Ken Cooper is my personal doctor. I'm pretty fortunate to have him uh, for my annual checkups. And he wrote a book called Aerobics, which you talk about here as well. You know, I talked to Dr. Cooper just before this interview. I said, you know, what, what should I talk to Nicholas Smith about? And he reminded me that back when he was doing his work, and he had trained NASA astronauts, uh, worked in the Air Force, a, a remarkable doctor. But he was on this quest to prove that exercise, jogging, aerobics, would actually increase life expectancies and health. And he wanted to get people in their 50s, 60s, and 70s to start running. The medical establishment came down on him like a ton of bricks, that 50-year-olds would be dying in the streets, that this was a terrible idea. Well, there was kind of this thought that, uh, you know, any, any sort of physical activity was uh, dangerous if you weren't, quote-unquote, the, the right person. And uh, this is kind of something that... Uh, that uh, I'll, I'll come back to this New Zealand story that uh, Bill Barman went on when he saw, you know, a man come to his aid that was not only older than him, uh, but had survived a heart attack. Uh, this kind of, you know, woke something up in his mind that, you know, this, this cardiovascular exercise was in fact good for you. And, you know, what, what Dr. Cooper found was it, uh, you know, it doesn't matter really if you're young or old, if you're active, it does add years to your life. And when we come back, more of our conversation with Nicholas Smith, his terrific book, Kicks, the great American story of sneakers.
This is Our American Stories. We're back with Nicholas Smith, author of Kicks, the great American story of sneakers. And we were just talking about the rise of jogging and the start of the New York City Marathon. By the way, that first New York City Marathon you point out in the book had 55 finishers. That's, uh, that's quite, quite a movement from 55 to what we watch today on national television. Let's talk about women who were long excluded from running in marathons, even up to 1966. You tell one story of Bobby Gibb, who was 23. She entered the Boston Marathon, got her envelope, hoping to see an acceptance and a racing number. Instead, she found a note from the director of the race. I'm going to read it to you. Women aren't allowed, and furthermore, are not physiologically able. Talk about the reasons women were excluded from marathons, and talk about one woman, Catherine Switzer, who changed everything. So uh, women weren't just uh, excluded from marathons. Uh, They were pretty much excluded from uh, every other sport all through the 70s. And, uh, you know, even... uh, college sports and women's colleges were uh, so segregated in the 10s and the 20s that men weren't even allowed to to come and watch unless you were a a relative of the women playing. It was considered uh, unladylike for uh, women to exert physical uh, activity. Now, um, that slowly and thankfully began to change in the 60s and the 70s. And Bobby Gibb was one of those people who kind of said, okay, I'm, I'm going to, to run the Boston Marathon, whether or not women are allowed to run or not. And, uh, you know, it did, um, it did have some, uh, some pushback. And one of the people that uh, saw that pushback firsthand was uh, Catherine Switzer, who was the first woman to run the Boston Marathon with a number. Now, she was able to enter by uh, entering just her initials, KV Switzer to get her number. But once one of the uh, race officials saw that a woman was running the Boston Marathon, he you know, walked onto the course. He tried to, to shove her saying, give me your number. And um, uh, Switzer's boyfriend kind of pushed him out of the way. And photographers riding by in a, in a truck caught all of this on camera. So all of this was on you know, newspapers uh, shortly afterwards. And, you know, over time, uh, things started to relax in major races and women were allowed uh, to compete and there were women's only uh, races in the 70s or in the 80s and it uh, wasn't until the 1984 Summer Olympics that there was an actual women's marathon. All of this, by the way, Nicholas, was building up the market for running shoes and at the same time endorsements were also starting to influence the sneaker world. Before there was a Michael Jordan, there was a guy named Walt Clyde Frazier of the New York Knicks, and this is, by the way, back when they actually won games and even a championship or two. Well, uh, both Adidas and Puma uh, were starting to get the idea that, uh, you know, to sell a lot of shoes, we need to have a lot of people wear them. We needed to have a lot of players wear them. So uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar uh, had signed with Adidas. Puma was looking for uh, a big star of the day to sign with. And Walt Frazier was kind of a, he's a very extravagant player, both on the court and off. He had a, a, a fashion sense that people used to tease him about. His, his nickname, Clyde, uh, kind of came from the movie Bonnie and Clyde because he had this uh, hat that reminded his uh, players uh, of the movie. So he was very fashion conscious. 
so Puma approached him uh, with an idea uh, to have a signature shoe. Now, this would have been, you know, the first professional uh, signature shoe basketball player. Now, you think, okay, well, what about, uh, you know, Chuck Taylor? That was also a signature shoe, but it wasn't, uh, it wasn't made when he was still playing in the game. It was named afterwards. So, you know, Clyde would have this very stylish uh, shoe uh, that he would wear in the games. And, of course, this is a key moment because this is around the time when sneakers started to move off of the courts, off of the playing fields, and into everyday life. People started wearing them uh, around the street. So the Clyde shoe was very popular, especially in New York, because you had one of the biggest New York Knick players wearing a shoe that you could also buy and, you know, just wear with any sort of outfit. And besides that, he's a very, you know, fashion conscious, stylish player. So any way to emulate him that you can afford, especially the shoe, is, uh, is going to sell. Indeed. And by the way, it's the first suede shoe, which I, I remember because I had one of these Clydes. My goodness, if it rained and you know New York weather, if it snowed, my Pumas, my Clydes never touched the ground. Yeah, there, there was a, uh, I think, a Puma executive who said something along the lines of, you know, we, we love it when it rains in New York because, or when it rains or snows, because that means we're going to sell a whole lot more suede shoes. Indeed. So uh, I, I don't know if it was a conscious decision uh, by uh, by the company, but, uh, you know, you have to kind of be mindful of what the weather is like if you want to keep your sneakers looking very nice. And also in the 70s, the drought and water restrictions in California gave rise to a different type of fashionable sneaker, a more durable kind that could take the punishment dished out by skateboarders. Talk about that. This is one of my most favorite surprises of the things that I researched for this book. Now, skateboarding went through several different phases. In the 50s and 60s, there was kind of a, a sidewalk surfer craze where, you know, it was uh, something that you can do was kind of like surfing, but on land, but this eventually died out. But it wasn't really until uh, the 70s and the uh, California drought in the middle of the 70s that skateboarding started to take shape as we would recognize it today. The, the reason that happened stretched back to Scandinavia, to an architect that designed a kidney-shaped pool. And another architect, very famous architect in California, saw this and brought that kidney-shaped pool to a house he was building in California. And, of course, this uh, you know, caught the idea eye of other developers and suddenly kidney-shaped pools were everywhere in California. So fast forward to the 1970s, you have this drought. Uh, there's not water to have in the pool, so all the pools are empty. So the, uh, the kids that are skateboarding are skateboarding because maybe the waves are flat that day. They're, they're, they come from a surfing background. And then they see these empty pools all over the city with uh, curved and sloped sides. So perfect for riding a skateboard up and down. And eventually they found that they can go very fast down these pool walls, shoot themselves up and do tricks in the air and then land. And this sort of thing was unheard of in skateboarding at the time. Tricks would be kind of, um, you know, handstands on a skateboard. This, this would be a good trick, not, uh, you know, flying through the air, turning around a few times and then landing. So as this kind of gonzo approach to skateboarding uh, happened, it started to gain more and more popularity as kind of a, an underground youth thing. But where shoes come into play is, as you can imagine, if you're going up and down pools, you know, you're going to fall, your shoes are going to take a beating. And there's this company called Vans, the, the Van Dorn Rubber Company that was based in California. 
And uh, they were famous for, you know, not making uh, mass-produced shoes that were the same everywhere. If you wanted to have a shoe in a certain pattern, they would make it for you. They they had the uh, the shoemaking machinery. They had the uh, retail outlets. So they were really kind of, uh, you know, completely vertically integrated. And after a while, they saw that, you know, people were demanding shoes that kind of uh, needed to hold up um, to a, a beating. They were, van shoes were tougher uh, than other shoes at the time. So skateboarders of the day kind of gravitated towards this, that, you know, it's better to buy a, uh, a shoe that was more durable than a shoe that would you know, fall apart and you would have to replace over and over. So the uh, skateboarders that were skating the pools, they, um, you know, tended towards van shoes because they were tough and also because, they were stylish. You can get them in you know, almost whatever color uh, that you wanted, which was, you know, a little bit unheard of at, at the time when shoes came in white, they came in black, or they came in like a dark navy blue, and that was it. So you had a combination of a uh, an underground subculture that had a very a specific demand for a shoe, and also there was this fashion angle that they wanted it to, you know, look how they wanted it to look. So this a combination of all of these different factors kind of contributed to not just the success of fans, but just uh, the concept of the trendy sports shoe. And more on the American Sneakers story here on Our American Stories. back with Nicholas Smith and we're talking about his book a really great read kicks about the history of American sneakers the next big influence in the world of sneakers didn't come from the sports world it came from the music world breakdancing and then soon after rap artists like Run DMC and the Beastie Boys would have their influence on the world of sneakers talk about that period so before we get to the 80s, we'll have to stretch back a decade and talk about the 70s. Now, earlier I mentioned, uh, you know, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar would have the, you know, Adidas shoe and Walt Frazier would have his Puma shoe. These shoes proved very popular in the, the budding uh, hip-hop movement. You know, as people were starting to develop uh, and invent breakdancing, people wanted to have a, a, a style all to themselves. So these breakdancing crews would often dress the same and, you know, they would all be wearing the same pairs of Adidas or they would all be wearing the same pairs of Nike or of the, uh, the Puma shoe. So these shoes were already kind of built in to a subculture. Now, when a hip hop group like Run DMC comes along, they originally didn't have the uh, the style that we know them of today. They didn't have the black leather jackets, the Adidas track suits, the the hats, or the uh, the famous black and white superstar shoe. They dressed in you know kind of uncool looking plaid suits. But it wasn't until they started dressing like the uh, the Queens neighborhood uh, that they came from that they started to kind of develop their own identity. And part of this identity came in that Adidas superstar shoe. Now, of course, if you have a very popular group, you know, wear a certain style of shoe, and if you're, you know, a fan of that group, you're probably going to wear the 
the shoe or the brand yourself. And there was a, a famous incident where they were at a, a concert in Madison Square Garden. And just before they performed their famous song about their favorite shoe, my Adidas, they asked everyone in the audience to, to hold up their shoes. And all of these Adidas shoes went in the air. Now, fortunately, a uh, executive from Adidas was in the audience and he saw the power that, that the band had. And they were the first non-sports figures to have a shoe contract for an athletic shoe company. Let's talk about the year 1984 and Nike. It was a big year, but it was a bad year. They just posted their first ever quarterly loss. They were even into layoff mode. They needed to do something big and in the nation's biggest sport when it came to sneakers, and that's, of course, basketball and the NBA. You write about the fact that there were three big-name prospects that everyone thought Nike should pursue. John Stockton, who ended up at the Jazz, Charles Barkley at the Sixers, and Hakeem Olajuwon at the Houston Rockets. But a fourth name came up. Talk about number four, because he would help transform the company, and Nike made a big and astronomical bet on number four. Nike had shoes on players, but they didn't have shoes on the right players. And they wanted to kind of target some up-and-coming names in the 1984 draft. Now, that fourth name, Michael Jordan, they could have just offered him the same shoe contract as they were going to with, uh, with John Stockton and the others. But uh, the key point here is we're not going to uh, give Jordan just any old shoe contract like we've been giving the pros for the past couple of years. We're going to build an entire line, an entire signature shoe line and apparel line around Michael Jordan. Because they did this, and because Jordan was such uh, an electric player, they kind of invented something new. Now, of course, there was Clyde Frazier earlier, but there wasn't really the full force of a company's marketing behind one single player. One single player kind of presented as his own brand, the Air Jordan brand. And as Jordan started to get better and better, of course, people wanted to you know, know why was he so good. Uh, a couple years after they started coming out with the Air Jordan shoe, they, they wanted to try something new with the marketing. So they hired a very young director named Spike Lee to direct a series of commercials starring him as his character, Morris Blockman from his first movie, and Michael Jordan. Now, these commercials were revolutionary for the time. Other sneaker commercials starring NBA stars were a bit cheesy. They were a bit you know, they, they they didn't really sell the product as much as, you know, okay, Larry Bird is wearing, you know, this brand of shoes, so you should also wear it. But what the uh the Spike Lee and, and Michael Jordan commercials did, they were they were funny. They were lighthearted. They didn't seem quite like a shoe commercial. They were kind of a, a comedic pairing with uh, Michael Jordan acting as the straight man. Now, the big tagline from these uh Spike Lee and Michael Jordan commercials was, you know, what makes Michael so great? Is it, uh, you know, the, the way he jumps? Is it, uh, you know, his haircut? Is it, is it the shoes? And is it the shoes? This became kind of the, uh, you know, the, the seed that Nike wanted to plant in everyone's mind. Okay, well, if, you know, Michael can do all these things in the Air Jordan shoe, well, maybe the Air Jordan shoe can help you play basketball better. Maybe it can help you jump higher. So there was kind of this 
this magic that Nike was tapping into with these Spike Lee and Michael Jordan commercials. And I don't know if this was conscious of them at the time, but it's a, kind of a very old idea of the magical shoe. Now, what, uh, what makes Cinderella a princess? It's the glass slipper. What makes Dorothy come back from the land of Oz? It's her ruby slippers. What makes Michael Jordan jump so high? It's got to be the shoes. It's got to be the shoes. By the way, you, you also talk about this remarkable business deal. Jordan got royalties not only on the sale of each Air Jordan sold, but all Nike Air sneakers. What a big risk to take. But by the way, what big rewards for Jordan and for Nike, that deal? Oh, for sure. You know, without really the success he had on the court and without the success he had with Nike, we wouldn't have an entire Jordan brand spun off from Nike. It's funny, he's, you know, been out of the game for so many years but Nike Air Jordans are, you know, still still worn by people everywhere. You know, they still come out with new uh, Air Jordans all the time. There's new versions of uh, different colors of the old Air Jordan shoes from the 80s. So it was kind of a uh, a unique way that really paid off for both the player and the company. Tell the story of where Nike got their new slogan, Just Do It, because it's a pretty unlikely source. This kind of came, you know, from uh, the least likely source that you can think of. There was a, a murderer uh, on death row, and he uh, was, you know, okay, well, what are your last words? And they were, you know, along the lines of, okay, well, let's do this. Now, one of the executives saw this, he kind of thought, okay, well, I'll file that away. And it, when it became time to, you know, think up of a, a new slogan for the company, this popped into his head, just do it. You know, we know now that uh, Just Do It, it's as much a part of Nike as the, the swoosh is. So it's, it's so baked into the company's DNA that it's difficult to, to separate them. And I should also add that uh, when the uh, Just Do It slogan came out, it, it became kind of a, uh, a rallying cry, a point of pride for people. It, uh, you know, inspired them to, to do more. It inspired them to get out and exercise. Uh, there was one story where someone wrote into the company saying, I, I finally left my husband because I heard this slogan. So it, uh, it kind of, uh, again, tapped into a much greater idea uh, that was there that, you know, people sometimes need that little push. I can only guess most Americans now uh, have at least a few sneakers in their closet. We had started off this way, we'll come close to ending this way. But I look around now, Nicholas, and I mean, people are wearing sneakers almost all the time in business casual situations. I see men in sneakers routinely and women. Yeah, sneakers have kind of become the uh, the default shoe, whether we are going to the office or going to the uh, the supermarket. It's, uh, you know, what we... Uh, throw on to look nice or it's what we throw on just to have something on our feet and we can thank the uh the birth of casual friday for bringing the uh, sneakers into the boardroom indeed last thing what surprised you most telling this epic story of the sneakers i know i was sideswiped by this book and absorbed because in so many ways just as you had said early on this is the story of 20th century american culture I guess what surprised me most when I looked into it more and more, sneakers were there at so many different junctures in the 20th century. You know, even U.S. soldiers trained in sneakers going to uh, World War II. What I'm fascinated by is, let, let's take the Converse All-Star, for example. This is a shoe that, you know, if you're a, a punk rocker, you might wear, or if you're a, 
you're a teenager wanting to look hip, uh, you might wear. Or if you are, are a little bit older, may have worn in gym class many decades ago. It's a shoe that, that means so many different things to so many different people. I, I recently got back from a uh, vacation in Venice, Italy, and I saw an old nun wearing a pair of Converse all-star sneakers, the, the Chuck Taylor shoes. So it, it's really a shoe that's, that's just become almost generic, even though it was at one time a very specialized piece of athletic equipment. Yeah, I can't think of any American fashion brand in which I actually wore Chuck Taylors and I played I played high school basketball and my daughter is wearing Chuck Taylors the old man and the daughter wearing the same exact sneaker where else in American fashion exactly and you know <laughs> that that sneaker will probably be around for a, a long long time after that well Nicholas thanks so much for your time and thanks for kicks the great American story of sneakers well thank you for having me and that was Nicholas Smith. The book Kicks, the great American story of sneakers, and it's available on Amazon. And by the way, go to ouramericannetwork.org if you like what you hear and sign up for our free weekly newsletter. You'll get the five best stories of the week. Go to ouramericannetwork.org and just sign up. And by the way, send the link to friends if you like what you're hearing. Nicholas Smith and the Sneaker Story of America. Nicholas Smith, the stories of sneakers in America. Here on Our American Stories.